The views and opinions expressed by hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Global Liberty Alliance, its network, sponsors, donors, or broadcast platforms. The Global Liberty Alliance provides this podcast for informational purposes. Freedom of speech is a fundamental right and essential for free societies to prosper. Thank you for listening and supporting the mission of the Global Liberty Alliance, dedicated to strengthening and defending fundamental individual rights, free markets, and the rule of law. And welcome to another podcast for the Global Liberty Alliance. This is your host, Jason Poblet, coming to you from Alexandria, Virginia. I hope you're all doing well. Please keep sending us those great questions, those program ideas, and your suggestions on how we can defend free markets, uh, free, uh, rule of law, and individual fundamental rights, especially religious freedom. On that subject, today we have a very special guest, uh, former Congressman Frank Wolf. Uh, he represented Virginia's 10th congressional district, I think it was from 1981 to 2015. And one of the reasons we've been wanting to have him on is because he is the quintessential uh, liberty warrior. He's somebody who has been in the trenches for a very, very long time. And I can't recommend enough his book, Prisoner of Conscience, One Man's Crusade for Global Human and Religious Rights. It'll give you a good overview of some of the work he's done. And we're going to give a link uh, to his um, book on, on the podcast uh, website. Uh, a man who's fueled by faith, uh, who believed he could do something about it. The congressman became a champion for human and religious rights around the world. Uh, well representing the Virginia 10th, of course, because he was very active here, uh, cracking down on gang-related crimes and other issues of importance in Virginia. But he was able to use that perch of his and his constituents supported him to relieve suffering from war, AIDS, famine in places like the Darfur, China, and Bosnia. He became a key proponent of combating jihadism way before it became even a popular subject and led to the creation of the National Committee on Terror. He's been to so many different countries uh, around the world and helped co-found the Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission, also a bipartisan group of, I think it's now almost 200 members, I'm not sure of that number, of uh, members of Congress who work together to raise awareness about international human rights and fundamental rights. He's been to Ethiopia, Sudan, Sierra Leone, Congo, Rwanda, so many other places. I'm not gonna get into every single one of them because I want to, him to share some of these great stories with you. Um, Congressman Wolf, welcome to the podcast. I hope you're doing well. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jason. I'm glad to be with you and thank you for your good work. I'm glad to be with you. And thank you, by the way, uh, for the, all the work that you've done also uh, over the years to help our uh, the persecuted church in Latin America, in Cuba, and, and those people uh, appreciate everything you've done for them. And I know they ask me frequently about the work you're doing. So thanks again for the work you help our friends down 90 miles away and in other places in the region. Thank you, Jay. Um, a few months ago, last year, uh, here in Virginia, you we're speaking at a conference and we're going to provide a link uh, to folks so they can listen to that talk. You said a statistic that uh, shocked the folks in the room that today there is more persecution of Christians taking place in the world and of religious minorities than at any other time in history. In fact, 
80% of the people living on this great planet are living in places where there's religious persecution. What, you know, what's going on there? How, how do you unpack that to an audience that maybe is not that familiar with this issue? Well, that, I quoted that during that talk, uh, the Pew polling data. Pew has done a good job of going back over, over the years. And the, the one that broke at the time that I gave the talk, 80%, that's 80% of the world's population at that very moment, at the moment that I was speaking in that Catholic church, were living in a religiously repressive country. To give you some idea, in 2009, if you had given the same speech at the same time, the number would have been 70%. So in 10 years, it's jumped from 70% of the world's population to 80%. And 80% is not just, it's 81, 82. It's kind of a little bit above 80. Wow. So we are seeing, and that's the latest data. And of course, since the Pew, it could have even increased when we see some places that we'll talk about later. There's growing persecution and there's less really interest in the West about this uh, than I have ever, ever seen before. Many in the faith community, whether it be in Cuba, whether it be in Nigeria, whether it be in, in China, they really feel kind of abandoned. And, and uh, when you go to these countries, many times the question will be, uh, Mr. Wolf, does the church in the West care? And, and honestly, many times the answer is really not. Mm -hmm. uh, when we passed the International Religious Freedom uh, a bill back back in the late 90s there was a coalition chuck colson and people like that catholic cardinals bishops i mean jewish leaders different denominations they all came together it was a gathering uh, at the mayflower and there was really a, a power in the room and you may recall for about seven or eight years after that there was an international religious freedom sunday it was in November. Yeah. Like churches would bring people together. They're almost all gone. Wow. Almost all, 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 all gone. So, I mean, whether it's China, whether it's Iraq, and more biblical activity took place in Iraq, frankly, than any other country in the world other than Israel. Egypt just saw a Coptic Christian, a, a terrible story. I won't go into it. Just last week, Nigeria, Nigeria is the largest country in Africa has 219 million people. In 2050, Nigeria will have more people than you have in the United States. And of Christians, just of Christians, mm -hmm. more Christians, I want to say this slowly because people have a hard time grabbing it, more Christians have been killed by Boko Haram in Nigeria than all the people than all the people that ISIS killed in Iraq and Syria combined. And if you recall, during that period of ISIS, you couldn't turn on the news without a story about ISIS. We have military forces right. doing that. Just in Nigeria uh, alone. And then on top of that, you have the Fulani militants killing people. And ISIS has now moved in to, to, the, to the country. And so the list goes on. In China, you know, Catholics are being persecuted, Protestants are being persecuted. Uh, to, to Tibet, there's basically a cultural genocide. They have built bulldozed large portions of life that are no longer to Tibetan. Uh, the Falun Gong, and we, we saw the pictures, and we know they're anywhere from 1 million to 3 million. I think it's in a higher number, but you, you never want to exaggerate because if you do and you 
you're proven wrong, you, you destroy yourself. But at least a million Uyghur Muslims are in these detention camps that are mm -hmm. almost modeled after what the Soviets did. And so it's very grim. And I think we have a time of more information, internet, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox News, CNN, all, and yet there, seem, there seems to be less, less interest. You know, it, going back to Nigeria a minute and the word genocide, you were in Congress, before we get to Nigeria, briefly to talk about the genocide convention and the battle. A lot of people don't know it took United States became a party to the Genocide Convention, but it took almost, I think, 40 years to have it ultimately enacted into law and ratified. And remember Senator Proxmire and those battles that he would fight, he would give those daily speeches every single day he was in Congress uh, to bring that word into the U.S. code and be able to have it as part of our national strategy. And to think it took that long and the, the the word, of course, has been used a lot lately. A lot of people maybe don't know what that word means, but when when the when, when the congressman talks about genocide, he's talking about a, a a very specific legal definition. That's one of the most heinous of all crimes, and it's happening in places right now like Nigeria. And I recall that you and some other folks have reminded folks that uh, more Christians have been killed in Nigeria. Then all the people ISIS killed in Iraq and Syria combined. And right. these are people who were targeted for the only reason they were targeted is because they were Christians or they were some sort of religious minority. And they're trying to eliminate these people. It's, it's, uh, uh, it is the classic definition of genocide. Some of us on the outside are wondering, we've, we, we think we've come around as a nation as far as how we will fight these fights globally. Uh, we, we are a party to the convention. It's part of our policy. It's part of our laws. How is it that in places like Nigeria, we've had such a difficult time using that word? For example, the Trump administration, uh, Secretary Pompeo, at the, toward the end of the administration, used the word genocide on the Uyghurs. And I, I believe that is what's happening there. Why hasn't that happened in Nigeria, do you think? Well, I don't know. It's it's really difficult to, to say. I think one of the reasons would be that very few people in the media are going to Nigeria. It used to be, if you remember, uh, Christiana Amanpour, who I've always been a fan of. She's now with CNN. Anytime there was something taking place anywhere in the world, yeah, she'd go. Yeah, she would. She would go. Now there are few or no reporters in Abuja or Lagos, and if they go. It's a two-day trip in a nice hotel, and then, but they don't go up into Jos and up into Gunduna State and up into some of the difficult. So the media isn't really covering this. Secondly, there have not been the congressional, the Codells, what they call the congressional delegations that kind of go in. And I think you have to go and live among the people, listen to the people. And, and uh, uh, the diaspora, the Nigerian-American community has almost 400,000 people. And they don't seem very organized, but but for some reason, it hasn't taken place. And Genocide Watch, uh, uh, Greg Stanton has called right. this genocide docu documents. Now, it really kind of this is history repeating itself. If you remember, the Rwanda genocide was taking place. Cables were coming in to the State Department to Secretary Christopher during the Clinton administration. 
cables were coming in at Kofi Annan, they knew there was that general, the Canadian general, Dallaire, he was there telling, this is what's taking place. Nobody wanted to acknowledge it. And as a result, seven, 800,000 people died. To Bill Clinton's credit, uh, I've always, you know, I was not a supporter of President Clinton, but to his credit, really, he felt so bad about it that he he flew to Rwanda. Go Google, look at it. He flew to R R Rwanda and apologized. Mm -hmm. Air Force One was there and apologized for not acting. So nobody wanted to get involved in there. Nobody wanted to call it genocide in, in uh, Iraq. If you recall, ISIS yeah. was putting uh, uh, the the symbol on uh, Christian and nobody wants to call it the Yazidis. Believe me, what the Yazidis have faced, there are still roughly 3,000 Yazidi women and girls who are still missing. They think they're alive, but they're still... But, so the State Department was reluctant. Uh, they were saying, if we call it this, we're going to have to do this and that. But it, there's been a kind of a reluctance. And now I think it's even more so because let's say China. It, I'm not saying China's committing genocide. But China is giving its cultural genocide, let's say, in, in uh, uh, Tibet. Mm -hmm. There are so many American and Western businesses doing business in China that they don't want to upset the apple cart. And, and not to, I don't want to overstate because some people do this. If you go back and look at the history, there were many Western companies that were working with the Nazis. That's right. Yep. And and there's like some great books out of that are just kind of shocking. And, and I'm not going to mention the companies, but so there's always been a reluctance. But what has always made the difference was the faith community and a lot of the human rights communities. Some of them, you know, I won't go if I mention one or two, you'll uh, I'll love somebody else. But a lot of good that are not Christian, that are not faith oriented, speak out. You really don't have that taking place now, nor do you have you know, the Chuck Colsons and, and, and some of the people, you know, I, I shouldn't mention, but some of the more prominent religious leaders. And so as a result of that, the genocide continues. And there, there was a, um, if your people want to really see it, there was a uh, December 2019 Wall Street Journal, very in-depth piece done by uh, the Frenchman Bernard Henry Levy. Uh, it's about what's happening. He literally says that what's happening in Nigeria could very well lead to a Darfur and a Rwanda when the world and the U.S. ignored the genocide. So the Clinton administration, State Department, they knew genocide was taking place. The American Embassy, if you look at they knew one of the best books on this, if you read Samantha Power, she just got concerned. confirmed yeah, she did. Yeah. A, a very good person. She was writing. You you read her book. It's one of the most powerful books yeah, I've it's ever. A very good. Heard. It's a very good book. It's a very good yeah. book. And so I think we're at that point now. And now I think what's going to make it difficult is that so many people are leaving the church, and we don't have the the voice of the church, like uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, Margaret Thatcher, and Pope John Paul. I mean, they were the voice. I mean, for taking down communism in in Russia. And in, and in Eastern Europe, we don't have the Solzhenitsyns. Read Solzhenitsyns too. They just put them in English. Notre Dame did. Uh, we just had the voice, the, the Sharanskys. Who are the Sharanskys? Nathan Sharansky, that's right. 
Oh, he was a he, he saw a lot of giant. Yep. So I, I think now we're seeing a very difficult time. And so the bad guys now know that they can be do whatever they want to do. Just yesterday, they're cracking down more and more on Hong, Hong Kong. The people of Hong Kong are just, they prohibited Tiananmen Square demonstration. Uh, Martin Lee, who was a giant in the judicial system, used to come by my office all the time, has been arrested and sentenced. Joshua Wong, the young Christian student, about 22 now, has been sentenced. So the world's silent. Well, and you, and, and you know, of course, in our church, in Catholic Church, we have Cardinal Zen in Hong Kong, who's been... He's a giant. Cardinal, Cardinal Zen is a giant. I mean, I, I've met with He's a giant. But I don't know that many people are listening to Cardinal Zen. He's a You're giant. Right. You're right. In fact, even within the Catholic Church, uh, folks just uh, unfortunately are, are not hearing the call from giants like him and a few other very prominent cardinals who have been sounding this alarm uh, for a long, long time. And I think it's 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 uh, a tragedy. I really hope that people will pay a little more attention to it. And I think they will. It's just going to take a little more time. You know, the, the Biden administration reminded me of something that was recently announced. Uh, I was curious what you think of this. They rescinded, they overturned an executive order signed during the Trump administration that required federal agencies to prioritize international religious freedom in the planning and implementation of U.S. foreign policy. I quite don't understand why they did that. Uh, it's It wasn't yeah, it wasn't a a bad, a good. It was it was restating the law. Frankly, it is part of the law. The law you're very familiar with. Why would they do something like that? I mean, Blinken's a you know he's a good guy. He's been in Washington a long time. I uh, consider him to be a pretty respectful fellow who is sensitive to these issues. But why overturn something like that and create that tension within the faith communities? I I don't know. When I saw it a couple of weeks ago, I was stunned. Uh, it's going to make a big difference because this will no longer be, it'll no longer be a priority. It, it just will not be a priority. I, I don't know. I, I'm not close enough to, I mean, I, everything I know about Blinken seems like a nice guy. And, and I am very impressed with Samantha Power. I think she is a good person. Uh, I don't know what was going on on there, but what that, that sends a signal and that, that sends a signal I won't say to our enemies, but that sends a signal to foreign governments. That That's sends right. a signal. Yeah. That sends a signal to Cuba. Yeah. Sends, well, it's, it's, interesting, it's interesting you mentioned that because a few Catholic priests down there uh, who read it, because believe it or not, they covered the executive, uh, the, uh, the, 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 they, they carried the story in a local paper down there, one of those independent papers. And one of the priests down there who led a campaign. I uh, can't underscore how brave these priests are. They actually signed an open letter last year. There were 20 of them, I think, eventually who signed it. And they told me, this, the priest who led this one, he, he, he said to me, what happened? You know, we're putting our names out there. Um, and now this happens. I thought, because they, they couldn't follow the whole, they knew it was political, but they didn't think this issue was political because they just thought, oh, it's the U.S. and you have these laws and the U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom has said this. So even they... Uh, were a little shocked by it, and it was kind of like they took the wind out of their sail a little bit. Well, right, rightly so. And I, I uh, when I saw it, I asked a couple of people. Nobody can say, did the president do this or did? Uh, it's uh, and with Blinken's background, of course, he he was 
staff director, I think, on the center yeah. farm. I don't know, but it's a bad sign. And, but but the people who do pick it up, and there was not that much coverage in the Western press, but I tell you where it was picked up and covered. And they, I mean, this this told China that this is not going to be a priority. Exactly. This told, this told Iran it would not be a priority. This told Cuba that it would not be a priority. And it's a really a, a big, big step backward. You know, there's, um, you've talked a lot about the Middle East, and I think our listeners would benefit from the nutshell version of what's happening there. Uh, my my spiritual advisor recently said, and I think you've talked about this also, that uh, if Paul were out there today, uh, he doubts he'd make it all the way, given how difficult that world, uh, that part of the world has become. For listeners who may not be as familiar with the Middle East and its importance for Christianity, uh, what is your message about what's happening there right now? Well, it's very bleak. Uh, and again, I, I, I made the comment, Jesus was not from Dallas, Texas, or Richmond, Virginia. Jesus was from, <laughs> from the Middle East. And if you look at the country after country after country, Syria, the Christian population, is suffering tremendously. I was on a conference call on Thursday of last week or Friday, I don't know what day, with a group called in, in, in Defense of Christians. Some of the reports coming out of Syria are just are just terrible. And these are Christians who are not involved supporting the government, against the government. They just want to exist. And a Christian community was, was flourishing. I, I, uh, I went to Syria, and the Christian community is very, very powerful. And I think you're, you're right. It sounds funny, but Paul could not travel the road to Damascus today. It would be totally and completely unsafe. Lebanon, Lebanon, right. I mean, the Christian community is all, all the people of Lebanon, but the Christian community has dropped now down to 30%, something that's much lower. You know, their constitution requires the government to be broken up and the president has to be a Maronite Christian, and, but they're down, they're suffering, they're, they're, they value their currency, there is actually hunger. Their refugee camps on uh, on the the Syrian uh, Lebanese border, Hezbollah is, is pretty much controls large portion of the government. So the Christian community is suffering deeply there. Iraq, which I told you, more biblical activity took place in Iraq than any other country of the world, other than Israel. Uh, my first trip when I went to Nasiriyah, I went to visit a marine operation. And they told me this was Ur, and they took me, they literally took me to the cigarette that 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 mm. that Abraham saw. I, I have a picture of me climbing this. I mean, it's the history. We were in another little town and we went to a tomb, and they said, the tomb, Nahum. I said, Nay, this is Nahum's tomb. Mm. It is the tomb of Nahum from, from, from the old testament. Mosul, uh, if you recall, ISIS blew up. Uh, Jonah's Jonah's grave uh, from the Bible, Daniel, Babylon. I mean, you can just go on. So, and they have gone down from one and a half million Christians in Iraq to now roughly two hundred and fifty thousand. Oh. It's been stabilized because of the good work that, that Vice President Pence did, but they're really, they're really. I mean, they're just they're just kind of hanging, hanging, hanging on. 
you know, another shocking statistic is this one with Syria that I keep hearing that apparently, if you were to look at from 2010 to where we are today, uh, in 2010, there were about over a million Christians in Syria, or about 10% of the population. That was before the Civil War. Today, according to some of the data, that number was slashed almost in half or below half. That's pretty shocking. Yeah, no, and, and, and Syria is in the Bible over and over, and, and they're good people. And again, they're not with the Assad government, they're not against Assad, they're just, and the Christian community was fairly prosperous. They were, they were doing, they were doing pretty, pretty, pretty well there, but now it's, it's just grip. And then Egypt, I mean, Egypt's the place where Mary and Joseph took, took Jesus. Right. Egypt now, the Coptic Christian, you can go online, I won't get into it, the Coptic guy who was killed just last, last week, the Coptic Christian community is suffering tremendously. And now you have ISIS back, moving back in and some different groups. So all of the, uh, Israel obviously is, is free. That's not a problem there, but Syria on its border, terrible. Lebanon on the other side, Iraq over there. So it is the, the Middle East, Christianity in the Middle East is really declining fast. I had passed a, a, a law, an amendment to create a special envoy Right. For, for, for Christians and other religious minorities, I think as a Christian, you have to advocate. You just can't say, "Take care of me." You have to advocate for the uh, the Yazidis. You have to advocate for the Ahmadi Muslims in Pakistan that are being persecuted. And our our legislation covers the Middle East, including uh, Pakistan, because we wanted to do something to advocate for the Ahmadi. Muslims. I was a co-chairman of the Ahmadi Muslim Caucus. That job has never been filled. And so all during this period of time, the last five, six years, Christianity is dropping. And I think you will reach a point, painful, painful to say it. There'll be, other than in Israel, there'll be, there'll be, there'll be no Christians left. And to give you an example, and, and let me say, I hope I'm, I'm wrong. One of my first trip to uh, to to Iraq, and here's the story. I'll tell you, Iraq and Egypt. I asked how many Jewish people are left in in Iraq, and they told me, Mr. Wolf, maybe four elderly men. Do you know there used to be thirty or forty thousand Jewish people in, in Iraq? Uh, the finance minister was was a Jewish, hmm. and look what they did. They they literally just the Jewish community and forced them out. Look at look at Egypt. My last trip before I left Congress, we went to Egypt, and I met with uh, and, and the Jewish community has had such a positive impact in Egypt. And I, I met with the leader of, of the Jewish community in in e Egypt, and I said, "How many Jewish people are left? Because many people have taken over the Jewish synagogues and cemeteries." She said, "At that time, this has been." six years ago she said uh, maybe 20 or 25 hmm. they've all uh, they've all been forced forced out so if you look to see what took place for the jewish community in iraq and the jewish community in egypt i think the same thing is happening to the christian community in iraq and in egypt and in syria and unfortunately in lebanon too how does if you're an american uh, focusing on and maybe listening to this podcast and and you hear this 
a dire situation, what would your advice to them be? Well, first of all, why should they care? Even though I, 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 you and I both know why I think we should, but why do you think they should care? And also bringing it back home, we too are suffering a lot of persecution here. I think unprecedented, but we still have rule of law here. We still have courts. We still have ways to fight. We have a Congress. Um, what's your advice to American policymakers about these battles here at home? Well, I, so just, let me cover come, and a couple of things I won't say because I don't want to get into politics, but you, you really hit a very sensitive point when you're talking at home. And there's something that could be done and I don't really see it done. But I want to quote, I just pulled, I pulled some notes out for, for this. Colonel Francis George, he was the, Colonel George was the former president of the right. U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. In 2010, that's only 10 years, years ago, Colonel George predicted, this is exactly what Colonel George says. And, and, and I, I referenced this in, in that talk that I gave uh, at, at the Catholic Church. Colonel George says, I expect to die in bed. My successor will die in prison. And his successor will die a martyr in the public square. I think what's coming to America is just this. Is, it's off the subject of what you, you're, you're, what you all do and all, but it, it's 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 really and people are fearful. The cancel culture. I mean, if you're working for certain corporations and you say you're opposed to abortion or you, I mean, you, you could lose your job, you could lose your partnership in a law firm. So it, it's it's coming here. And it's really, really coming. Why should, why should we be interested? Well, there's a couple. I mean, if you uh, think the Bible is very, very important, which I, I do, there's so many passages in, in, in the Bible. Luke 4, 18 and 19, Jesus is reading from Isaiah. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to release the oppressed. You, he, Hebrews 13, 3, remember those who were prisoners, you were there. Isaiah 58, 10, very powerful. If you satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. You could go on, on, on and on. And, and then you may remember a speech that President Reagan gave uh, early, early 80s. Reagan said that the words in the Constitution and the words in the Declaration of Independence were a covenant, not only with the people in Philadelphia, what, 1776 and 1787, but a covenant with the entire world. That covenant has been broken has been ruptured mm. we're also seeing we're also seeing rampant anti-semitism yes we're seeing rampant anti-semitism around the world and we're seeing it now here in a, in a in america and very few people kind of say anything so i think it's in our dna both from the constitution the declaration of independence which is which is a promise, really. It's it's one that we have not completely fulfilled, but we're working to promise it. Uh, the International Declaration of Human Rights. You, you you mentioned that earlier. The biblical act activity, but religious liberty has been affirmed in international documents over and over. If you look where Mary uh, Marian Glennon says who taught at Harvard Law, Law School, I'm just pulling up the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted by the UN that every country signed. And that's when the genocide kind of the fellow in Blemkin kind of came up with a yeah. definition of genocide. But Article 18, the declaration, which we have all signed, explicitly says everyone has the right to freedom of thought, 
conscience and religion. This right includes freedom to change his religion or belief and freedom either alone or in community with others in public or private to manifest his religion or beliefs in teaching, practice, worship, and observing. Yet, these countries who signed it are now in violation of it. Hey, it's, this just triggers two, two threads I want to ask you about. I'm going to come back to the states a minute and then go back to the international. Um, one of the, the, the themes that we talk to human rights defenders in Latin America when we do this sort of work in the region is the very uh, foundational aspect of religious freedom to our country, to the United, to the United States. So when we, when we meet with groups and lawyers, independent lawyers and religious leaders, uh, they ask us uh, a lot of questions about human rights, but we always focus back on our tradition and how important it was to the founding of the Republic and why it continues um, to be an important part of our, our, our purpose for a reason for existence. And one of the things that we've noticed the last few years where we've had these talks with folks in the region is that we use a lot more examples about the assault on fundamental rights right here in the United States and religious freedom in particular. And there's a lot of great organizations that are at the point of that spear. I'm not going to mention all of them. You know who they are. Uh, and they're doing fantastic work. Even we're seeing that here. And we tell this to our lawyers and they look at, at lawyers in Cuba, for example, that we work with and they look at us and they say, oh, my God, if you guys are having these fights here, what's hope is there for us? And the one thing we always tell them is that, well, you guys are fighting a different fight. We're having a similar struggle. But remember, we have institutions, we have laws, we have rule of law, we have courts. But the one thing that I've noticed lately, I don't know if you agree with this or not, is that we've become a lot more coarse here in the States in our discourse and how we work with one another. And I know you've mentioned before how there are fewer and fewer people that get involved with these issues. Is it partly because of the way we talk to each other about these issues, about politics? Or do you think there's, it's, something more, it's something deeper than that? Well, I, I, you know, I don't know that I could completely answer. I think it's a lot of things. How, how we talk is, is one of them. Uh, my best friend in Congress was a Democratic member. Uh, your wife would know him, Congressman Tony Hall. Tony we're, Hall, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah we're, we're still friends. Actually, we're, we do every twice uh, a month, we do a, a prayer breakfast call around the world. And um, I mean, Tony used to actually contribute <laughs> to my campaign and we, but we're still friends. Uh, I, I own a little place down in Florida. He, he owns one about two miles from me. His wife and my wife are very, very close, close friends. I've always considered myself a close friend. I think she would say it about Nancy, Nancy Pelosi. You know, I don't agree with uh, Speaker Pelosi on a lot of issues, but you know, I we, so I yeah, I think there's the, the the country has been polarized, politically polarized. Everything that takes place in culture is downstream from you know it goes into the political system. Everything else, look at where we are polarized in a nation. I mean, the thought that we would have seen cities in Portland and right. Seattle and Chicago and uh, I have a couple of kids up in New York and the stories in, in New York, it's just incredible. So we are polarized and that polarization has now entered into the congressional blood system. And you hear people just attacking, condemning. I, I hear it sometimes and I always admire a freshman member that gets up and speaks out. I think that's very appropriate. You don't have to say, I'm not gonna talk. 
until I'm here for 10 years. But some of the language, it just, it just, and, and what we did, we, there, there were a group of four of us in Congress when I got in and Republican and Democrat, I'm not going to mention Tony Hall was in, so obviously, but I won't mention the others, but you would know them. We, we met every Tuesday for lunch and we would, we would, we would break bread with one another. We would eat. When, when you sit down and eat with somebody, there's something magic in food. I mean, read the book. I mean, just eating with someone, having a conversation, getting to know their family. They went to what school. They went to, where are they from? You become friends. So before you're going to attack that person, you're going to, you, you're going to sit down and talk to that person. And if the, so that's all gone. There, there were a large number of groups that did that where Republican, Democrat came, came together. And like, like I said, I used to worry a little bit that Tony Hall was going to be punished, but he was very popular. And, and, uh, uh, but, but he actually contributed to my campaign. And of course, as you know, that shows up. Yeah, And, and uh, we would many times there were battles. We would, we would be on the back rail together. I remember I was one of a few guys, I think, I, I don't know who the other seven I want. I, I voted against the speaker, voting against seating Newt, Newt Gingrich mm-hmm. for a reason. Nothing. I don't mean to criticize Newt. Newt's a good guy, so don't. But they they then let me see certain things, and it's a long story. But as you, you know, the opening day, you have to voice, you have to call out the speaker's name that you want for it. Mm-hmm. And Tony Hall came and stood on one side of me, and this member. Well, I'll tell you who it is. I mean, I don't think you mind. Dan Coates, who went Dan on to Coates, be, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the United States Center headed the DNI stood on stood on the other side when I when I when I voted. The, 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 those relationships were just, but we were friends. We we knew each other's family. We broke bread with one another. We prayed with one another, and we trusted. We trusted one another. It didn't mean that. Did not mean. Jason, that we agreed with one another and everything. But many times we might be there at a lunch. The bells ring, as you know how they are. We would go over and vote, and one would vote red, meaning no, and one would vote green, meaning yes. We come back to the lunch. Those days are over. They're gone. Wow. So do you you think you could have passed a religious freedom bill in in this climate back in 1998? You had a different political climate. Do you think it could have passed one today? I don't think so. Wow. That's sad. Well, it's it's I think the, the groups, there's definitely a lot of energy out here. And I think as you know, in our in our republic, and this is what we tell our our our, our friends in Cuba and Nicaragua and Venezuela and other countries, you know, we 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 can change the system by putting new men and women in power uh, who are committed to these battles. And it'll take time, I think. Uh, but that, I think that correction will happen uh, someday. Uh, getting into well, the... Dump, dump, oh, dump, go ahead. Dump, dump, I, I'm not going to get on this issue here, but sometimes when we're off the podcast, call me. And, and, and um, <laughs> there, Well, there's something that I think you can do that's not being done. And so, okay. But I don't okay. get into it. And one other thing I... I would say for the religious leaders, uh, and if they did it, I would join them. And I don't want to be overly, but I would. I think some have to be prepared to get arrested. 
Yeah, you've uh, talked up. You've I, talked about that before. You said that. No, you were, I've talk- always, well, I've I've always admired the African American community in the South. They were willing to literally. They did lunch counters, uh, and they would be willing to to, to get arrested. I, I one of my favorite uh, reads is if you read, and I would urge anyone listening, read Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. It's really powerful. Dr. King was willing to get arrested. And I think if Cardinal X and Bishop Y and prominent uh, were literally say, we're not going to go this, we're, you, you, you take us away, I think would wake up America. I think would also send a message to the millennials and to the Gen Z that these people really care. And so I, I think, and if you go back in the Bible, Daniel, Daniel, John, John the Baptist, Paul, Paul wrote a lot of his letters from a, from a, from a, from a jail. So I just, it's, it's time for a lot of the, and this is easy for me to say, to get arrested. And I've told one or two that if they got arrested, honestly, I go with them. I would, it would be an honor to, I mean, you, you've read about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so it would be. But I, but, but you call me sometime and, and, and I'll give you one or two things, but I don't want to get into the, some stuff here. No, understand. And we're getting close to the end of the podcast. I want to ask you two more questions. One of them is that international component of it uh, and, and genocide. You know, when that, when um, Raphael Lemkin, he was um, a Polish lawyer, for those of you who don't know him, he was of Jewish descent. And he almost, you know, just about single handedly went around and, urged um, nations to adopt uh, the genocide convention. And he came up with the, the, he coined the phrase for that, you know, Winston Churchill said that there was no, it was the crime with no name. Well, he came up with the name for the crime. In fact, in Samantha Powers' book, I think it's called The Problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide. Right. She, yeah, she, she, she goes into some of that, some of that background, which is quite interesting. But we, we, we have that word. We started talking about genocide at the beginning of the program. And there have been a lot of debates in the with the international bar and the lawyers. And uh, yeah, I've always said I'm a lawyer, but I always I've, I've, I've told folks you can't stop genocide with lawyers necessarily. Uh, they may become we become maybe a little more useful during the accountability phase uh, post genocide. But uh, there's a lot of different debates happening with the lawyers at the international bar to this day. I mean, if Lenkin had it really hard because nobody would he had many doors shut on him when he tried to go around and get that word and the convention together. But even today, uh, people talk about, and Powers talks about in her book, um, okay, so you, so you use this word, you, and that's part of that process. You have to speak out. You have to do as Eli Wiesel would say, you, know, you, you can't just turn a blind eye to this stuff. You have to denounce it as disagreeable as it is. You got to talk about it. But what happens in the action side between prevention and and, and well, stopping and preventing. And there's some people who say, well, that's why we have the ICC. Republicans, we tend not to like that organization for a variety of reasons. Some people say we have the UN, but the UN is a basket case of, uh, frankly, half the nations in the UN uh, are run by some pretty horrible people and doing some persecution. America, to me, still is the global leader on this issue. Uh, religious freedom, combating uh, you know, genocide. But what can we do as a nation to inject ourselves in this space, especially at a time uh, 
when there's this resurgent populism and people are saying, look, we don't want to be out there meddling in other nation's problems. We have to come focus here at home. And we got problems at home. But what is your answer to folks who say, well, that's their business. Let, let those countries do what they have to do. It's, 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 not, it's not for us to tell them how to conduct their affairs. Well, that's a good question. I think it would take a whole hour. I think <laughs> when, when uh, many people believe and the Chinese deeply believe, and this is painful for me to say, that America is in decline. Hmm. And decline is not a destiny. It's a destiny that you're going to get older and older and older, eventually you die. That's a destiny. Decline is a choice. Mm-hmm. And a nation's decline based on the choices that they make. And so the Chinese believe that we are in decline. As you travel, and I have it for the last year, been out of the country because of you know the COVID thing. But I think many of our friends that you would go visit in, 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 in Russia and Romania in the 80s and in different places in the 90s are now seeing America kind of in decline. They're seeing a nation divided. They're seeing a nation that used to, I mean, my father served in World War II. I mean, we're seeing a nation that did amazing heroic things. I think we're in a spiritual uh, and I don't mean spiritual from a religion, but we, we just, so I think we are facing facing decline, and I think decline is a not a destiny. I don't think there's anything that says America has to decline, but I think we are in the process of, and part of that is with the deficit. I mean, we're going to have a forty trillion dollar debt in four years and a seventy eight trillion dollar debt. You can't do this. I mean, no, if you look at cost of plywood. Plywood's gone from $25 a sheet, four by eight, to some people tell me in certain places, 80. I mean, so you you look at the real estate. I mean, so there's things that gone on, gone on, and we're seeing fewer and fewer people embrace the church, and we're seeing we're seeing fewer and fewer Bonhoeffers and fewer and fewer Wilberforces and fewer and fewer Chuck Colsons and fewer and fewer of Martin Luther King. So I just think we're in a difficult time. Now, I don't want to be pessimistic because I have five kids, but I have 16 grandkids. That's right. And I think this thing can be turned turned around. I'm not saying, hey, guys, give up. There's a, there's an interesting book by Cal Thomas. And you remember Cal Thomas? Yes, I do. Yeah, he lives down in Florida now. He lives down in the Keys somewhere. He, he wrote a book called Expiration Date. And he documents the different nations that have declined. And unfortunately, it'll shock you. And most have lasted 250 years. If he's right, our expiration date is six years from now. I'm not, I don't necessarily think there's a fixed time or place, but it's pretty powerful. And the other guy, if you want to read, he's really fascinating. I've I, I read a lot of his books and I've admired him a lot. I had once testified by my committee, Neil Ferguson. That's Neil, N-I-A-L-L, Ferguson. He's British, but he teaches at Harvard, I think, at Hoover. Decline happens rapidly. Mm. It doesn't just take years and years. So I I just think we need to kind of reshape. And I think when I go on to college campuses before this COVID, I was going around. These are really good young people. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think they 
they they just need to hear the story. And I think one of the things you could you 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 could do is put together a, a effort to get some a couple people from Cuba, uh, a couple people from Venezuela, a couple people from Poland, a couple people from Romania, a couple people from Russia who have lived under this, and and will will tell you now if you talk to them what's taking place, what's taking place in your country. Bring them to America and let them go on the college campuses and bring Solzhenitsyn's children. They're in their 40s, I guess, and they come back and bring them in. Also get a documentary, get a good film crew to, to film these people because many won't want to come with COVID to show on college campuses. There are many ways that we can bring this back. I don't believe that America is destined to, to decline because I think decline is not a destiny. I think the choices you make bring about decline. And unfortunately, at this period, I think the choices we are making is leading to decline. I think they can be reversed. When I, when I would go on some of the college campuses, I couldn't believe it. Um, that's why one of the greatest things was, I never traveled until I was in office for four years. And Congressman Hall had just gotten back from Ethiopia. You're too young, there was a big famine. And he said, you gotta go to Ethiopia. I had just gotten on the appropriations committee and I called uh, uh, Sil Conte. He was the chairman, a uh, ranking member. I said, can I go to Ethiopia? <laughs> what do you want to go there for? Yeah, sure. It broke my heart. What I saw, and I think, I think we need our hearts broken. We need more Codells gone to Rwanda, gone to Syria, gone to Josh, gone to Cuba. I would love to see Codell after Codell going down to Cuba. I believe that Cuba can be free in a short period of time. I believe if you put together a prayer network, I believe if you brought the right people down over and over, because when we would visit people in Romania, we were learning more from them, but we didn't realize it at the time, we were nourishing them and giving them hope. Uh, so I think now to bring some of them over here to give us hope, we can use, so I think there are ways to reverse this and turn it. And lastly, I believe in prayer. You know, I, I pray every night. Yeah, you you tell folks pray, speak, and act. I think that's, that's what it a, it's a good summary. But they all have to be together. You just can't say, you know, I did a prayer. You know, and I just <laughs> you gotta win them like like the civil rights. I learned so much from the Jewish community. They taught me so much during 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 the eighties. Uh, it was action. So you have to pray. You have to speak out about it, but then you have to act. You have to you do something. Yeah, you have to you have to have some 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 skin in the game and if you don't then i think the young people aren't going to believe you yeah and, and i agree with you on the millennials and the young people in fact we had a guest on the show a few weeks ago her name is holly uh, mckay she's a journalist uh in that age bracket and this young lady uh could have spent her life doing a whole lot of other things she's a very talented writer and she spent a, lo a large chunk of her, her her early 20s and mid to late 20s in the Middle East, and she wrote a remarkable book called uh, Only Cry for the Living, uh, Memos from Inside the ISIS Battlefield. And she goes to excruciating pain to tell the stories about victims of the folks we've been talking about on this show. And uh, we didn't get into the issue of religion with her, but it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable book. It's a very powerful book. And I do think it's because she took an interest in somebody 
uh, based on how I think she she told us the story. I believe it was because just just because it needed to somebody had to bear witness to it. And she's bringing that story to a, a, a different audience. And I think that's hugely important. And as far as our friends in places like Cuba, I agree with you. Uh, in fact, uh, a few weeks ago, we did a, a TV show with CBN and they did a uh, they were asking. That was one of the questions they were asking me. I was born here, but uh, my generation still uh, who stays engaged in these battles, uh, we grew up with our loved ones telling us the stories about the persecution and the things that they would do to you. And then the new generation that's come out here, it's still happening, folks. It's happening in many places very nearby. And one of the things we urge our listeners and uh, Congressman Wolf, I think, has given us a lot of ideas is these issues are important. There's a lot of opportunity for you to get involved. I encourage people, even if you're not especially religious, to go to church, uh, meet, meet your friends, meet your neighbors, even if you're not particularly uh, knowledgeable about the Bible, doesn't matter. You you can still participate and learn about these issues. And there's a lot you can do. And I think uh, we'd like to close, uh, Congressman. We usually give folks some pointers. I think you've done a lot of that already. Is there anything that you'd like people here to take away from this that maybe can spur them into action in addition to maybe reading some of the books we've talked about, but also anything in particular you think can get someone more engaged in this type of uh, type of work? Well, uh, read Thomas More, Man for All Seasons. Read John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy's book, uh, Profiles of, of Courage, Man Who Made a Big Difference. Didn't always turn out well, but they made made a big a big difference. Secondly, go see the people, go visit, try to go in. I think that rather than having a career on Wall Street to be able to work in a refugee camp and do some of these, these things, but you have to do the action. You can't really just kind of say it's bad and write a letter to the editor and you also have the opportunity of running running for 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 political office there is an opportunity to take these issues i think this issue could be with the right uh, people could 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 be a, a powerful political issue republican and democrat congressman uh, tony hall's a democrat i mean he i'd vote for him if he were in my district because it's so i i think be involved in a political process but you got i, I guess in a way I, i'd end with this you got to get your heart broken. You got to really, you got to really, there is hope because in 1985, Chris Smith and Tony Hall and I went to Romania. It was darker in Bucharest than it was in Moscow. It was grim. You may remember it, Ceausescu. Ceausescu, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, 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 this was, this, I mean, it was grim. Christians were banned. Oh, it's terrible. Four years later, the, it fell. Communism fell. December 1989, just around the Christmas, Christmas season. I remember I was in a store buying a TV for my wife, trying to buy a TV. It wasn't made that was not made in China, it wasn't made outside of America. And as I was looking at TVs, they had pictures of the revolution taking place in China. In four short years, literally, they overthrew the communist government. Look what Pope John Paul did in Poland. So this is all doable. And this is, this is be a Wilberforce, be a Bonhoeffer, be a, be a Martin Luther King. Be the, I mean, I think uh, there's great opportunity. But you gotta, you got, it's gotta break your heart. Amen, amen, and rebuild from there. Well, Congressman Frank Wolf, thank you for spending so much time with us today. I hope you'll 
Uh, you're always welcome to come back uh, if you ever want to uh, have a platform. And we really appreciate what you're doing. Uh, thank you so much for spending time with us. And uh, I hope you have a, a great summer. Well, good. Thank you. And after some time, call me and I'll cover these other things that I didn't think would be perfect to get into to, uh, to your, your podcast. But no anyway. Problem. Okay, great. Well, thank you, God sir. Bless you. God bless all your listeners. Bye now. God bless you, folks. Hello, fellow Liberty Warriors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way uh, to make a podcast. It's free uh, for starters. There's also uh, an awesome creation tool. If you don't want to hire a producer right away, you can record and edit your podcast right from your phone, right from your computer, anywhere you are, at any time. It's uh, distributed for you, so that's really important. Once you record this, you need to get it to the right platform. They will do that for you, including on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast. It's all in one place. It's very easy to use. So give Anchor a try. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm to get started.